If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Our latest guest on soundtracking is John Crowley, the Irish film and theatre director who previously brought us critical successes, Intermission, Boy A and Brooklyn, which I absolutely adored. His new offering is The Goldfinch, based on Donna Tartt's novel of the same name. The narrative centres on Theo, a young man who takes a painting from a museum after his mother dies in a terrorist attack. Now, whilst the cinematography is provided by undisputed master of the art, Roger Deakins, John went for a relative novice in Trevor Gorakis for the score. And it's with Trevor's cue, Goldfinch Reveal, that we begin. Oh, John, it's a real pleasure to have you on Soundtracking. I'm Delighted to be here. Thank you for having so me. So much to talk about. Um, but let's start with the goldfinch. Um, and music plays a part in this film narratively as well as for the purpose of creativity. I love the tone that you set with the film, with the, the score. But let's talk about music and this story, first of all. Was it easy to find how it would sound for you? No. <laughs> no, it was, it was extremely difficult. And... I decided on a composer very, very late in the day. And that's because the tone of the piece is so particular and tricky to land. And it's got such an odd mix of elements Yeah. that, you know, I mean, I'm not a big fan of using temp scores anyway. I find it very difficult. And, and of course, then you, you know, I'm sure you're very aware of that you, you can get stuck in sort of temp love, you know, that you, 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 you can often hear the DNA of a temp score coming through the actual yeah. score of, yeah. a, of a film. And I really didn't want that in this instance. Um, I had a, a brilliant music editor who sort of would try lots of different colors yeah. on the film it's as nice we were editing it, it yeah. and really began to, to, to get a foothold in it and kept returning to this idea that it had to feel yearning, you know, yeah, it, that, yeah, and it was yeah. an emotion that, that it had to feel like there was an emotional reach from Theo to in in the in the middle of this stuck place that he finds himself
And those different locations as well. Uh, absolutely. Very much have their own sound. identity. Yeah, yes, definitely. they did. They did. And, and, you know, the whole Vegas section there had a very different sort of palette to it that it, it sort of. The, every time you put something wrong in the film, the film would sort of effortlessly shrug it off, as it were. It would go, no, not right. But, it, 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 would, but it wouldn't actually talk to me and tell me what was right. So, so we had to keep, keep going Try at it. Try harder, John. Exactly. Try harder. So, you know, the, a lot of that Vegas section has, has a lot more of a sort of almost a more ambient, um, abstract electronic texture yeah. quality to it, which yeah. isn't just about the space there. It's just much more about the emotional state that he finds himself in. And then, of course, it had to have a sort of propulsive quality at times as well as certainly as we move into Amsterdam at mm-hmm. the end where there's like breathless quality of, of him being way out of his depth. interesting you say that because there was some sort of just seen it this morning and kind of you know trying to reread my bad writing and my notes and stuff there was things that I really pinpointed on where there were moments where I felt there was this beautiful use of almost like multiple melodies over each other that almost felt like you were getting a reflection of his emotions being in turmoil internally sort of thing and I thought that was just beautifully conveyed through Trevor's score really yeah he also you know what what, what Trevor did was he went away and wrote 10 minutes of music for the, yeah. for the film oh, wow. as an audition, as it were, <gasps> because he was introduced to me by um, Sue Jacobs, our fantastic music supervisor. And having left it very late in the day to make a, a, a decision on this, you know, I was, I was nervous of using somebody who hadn't a great deal of, of experience, yeah. but she had pegged him as yeah. a young assistant in Philip Glass's studio years oh, ago well, she's coming from good stock totally yeah and so i met him and he's very quiet he didn't he didn't so he doesn't talk a good movie he doesn't need to talk a good movie because he's he he scores a good movie as it were so yeah. he's, he's um but he went away and i was i was so blown away by 
what he came back with. Yeah. And he immediately had the, the repeating figure in there, which, which just, without over-explaining, it felt like something trapped and yeah. felt like something which, was, which wasn't resolving itself in the music and had attention to it. Yeah. And something which wanted to take flight and couldn't. And, and that sort of, in a weird way, gave us the whole score because I, I knew how to handle the mother sequence at the end without it being sentimental and that it would, it would answer itself yeah. musically by resolving itself. And did he, did you send him edits and cuts of things to watch in terms of to come up with something? Was that the... He, he watched the whole film. The whole film. Great. Without Without any music on it. Wow. So he responded um, completely yeah. uh, coldly, should we say, you know. To the performances, though, as well, I to, think. To performances. And, and he didn't, he hadn't read the book. Yeah. So he came to it and he was very drawn into it. It, was, it Suddenly, I could tell that he he just got it and suddenly became obsessed with this young boy's dilemma yeah. and his attachment to this object and what it meant and how to express that and in musical terms which is what we had been working very hard to try and express yeah. in visual terms all yeah. the way and in performance terms you know and um, yeah he he'd, um, he I was think very special yeah
It's interesting because when we speak to directors and composers about, you know, at what point they come on board with projects, it's all very different for each project. But um, Barry Jenkins and Nicholas Bratel are ones who spring to mind who Nicholas doesn't come on until he's shot the film because he wants Nicholas to react to the performances. Yeah. So, you know, if Beale Street could talk, if it hadn't been Regina playing that role... Nicholas's music would have been completely different yeah, because yeah. of that performance, which is really interesting to. You see, I love that. I, you know, I, I find that music is the, the most difficult thing to talk about at any point, right? But, <laughs> but especially early on in the process. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, we were halfway through editing this film before I met Trevor. You know, and and it uh, it was f- pretty formed as yeah. an edit. I knew what it was at that point, but I'm always fascinated by by directors who can actually compose music before the shooting and actually, you know, shoot the, shoot the film the to the score. Basis, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's amazing to me. I, I would never even begin to know how to do that. <laughs> There's a couple of other bits as well that I wanted just to, to, to pull up, which I thought were amazing, was obviously Glenn Gould's a character in the story in terms of where he, you know, his, how his world features in one of the characters' world as well. So you kind of have to have that in there, don't you? Mm-hmm. So, but the way, that it's, the way that it's played out is just, it's really subtle and beautiful. actually right at the end where he's kind of laying out the pills mm. um, and it's so emotional mm-hmm. really kind of it's almost like it's kind of playing with your your heart in a little way it's so clever but yep. so subtle as well yeah yeah and it's a circular piece and it goes round and round and round and it just it feels like somebody who's going you know I've reached the end of this and I have no more to say other yeah. than this and it's it is very very um, you're right, because of course the, the target of that scene, no spoilers, is the most emotional shot in the whole film. And so that was, that took a long time to, yeah. to, to circle it, no pun intended. He, we, we kept coming back to it and he kept working it and I, I think it's my favorite piece in the whole film. The contemporary tracks that you've used as well are, are brilliant. Um, when I, I, New Order, Your Silent Face, f- mm-hmm. for kind of when we meet Boris, really, or when he meets Boris kind of for the first time. Thought that never changes remains a stupid lie. It's never been quite the same. No hearing or 
Radiohead track, everything in its right place. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the first sound of that piece of music kind of—it's almost like it scoops up my insides anyway. So I know, and and it's a track I adore, and I thought long and hard whether it was the right gesture because it's quite a well-known track to put it mildly, oh, you, you know. Great. So I was, a bit, I was a bit worried. Okay, is that going to be okay? Or is it going to take you out of the film? But ultimately, we tried so many other tracks there, and kept coming back to that track that yeah. there, was, there, there was no way of beating it. with the story that you're you're pulling on bands or things that you like to, to R- kind of Radiohead is mentioned in the book yeah. you know different tracks yeah. um, uh, but tonally I mean I, I worship their work so I didn't need much convincing yeah. uh, it's Karma Police is the one that, that's referred to in the book yeah. quite a lot you know um, Codex is one which it's a track that I adore yeah um, and there's a lyrical connection with the sequence that you're looking at of jumping into the water but that's not quite what it what was important to me that was the very first piece of music we put on the film in the edit actually because yeah. Kelly our editor was had tried out a few different tracks for the editor's assembly and they didn't quite sit in there with, with what I was looking for tonally yeah. and, and I said okay can we just try this because this is actually what's always been in my head codex at this point and yeah. we tried it and it sat with the images beautifully and it just wound up staying there all the way through yeah. The entire edit, it never, it never left. Into the edit as we were trying because we tried a lot of different 
more psychedelic, trippy music there and tried to find something a little bit more off the beaten track, should we say, but mm-hmm. kept coming back to, to it's radio. It's talking head, to you, you know. again. It is talking to you. The film does talk to you. Yeah. It's true. And, and, you know, then there's the Dylan track, of course. Yeah. Which is mentioned in the book and it's mentioned in a scene where the which in a sequence which is in the film where Mrs. Barber comes up to the door and closes the door and the two boys playing chess there's a cocktail party going on and Theo has a memory of hearing the the the, the pianist at the party playing it's all over now baby blue and that always stuck with me all oh, all the way wow. along and of course you know it's a it's an amazing track i, I love the track <laughs> What you need you think will last But whatever you wish to keep You better grab it fast He understands your orphan with his gun Crying like a fire in the sun Look out, the saints are coming through And it's all over now, baby blue So we tried out every version we could get our hands on of It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, of cover versions to see is there one that would allow us a way in. Yeah. Uh, you know, Marion Faithful has got a great yeah. one, and you know, um, but the second we heard the opening of that <laughs> Van Morrison and them, it was that was it. it yeah, was, you can't know. replicate that. Yeah. connection with this story and why did you why did you want to make the film of the goldfinch i love the book and i had read it for pleasure shortly after it came out when i was making brooklyn and um it struck me as a profoundly original meditation for want of a better word yeah. on grief and there's an idea sort of running through the veins of the book that i found very touching which is the idea that um uh, a, a beautiful work of art experiencing it isn't a passive consumer experience that mm. that actually a, a great painting or a great poem or film or play contains within itself a challenge that if you respond to it and you love it that you spot what's of lasting value in it 
and look after it in a sense that it, it almost demands it of you that and and so going to see this painting long before we, we shot the the film as well the way that the bird looks at you and you look back at it it's, yeah. it's quite striking and i can see absolutely why this 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 work of art would obsess donna enough to base the whole story around it so they were the they were the big emotional reasons for me that that felt very powerful. And then when you when you make that decision, you're going to, what, with this particular adaptation, was the was the script written and then you came on board or at what point? And the first draft, yeah. Peter had yeah. So so um, when Warner's had a first draft, they they asked me if I'd like to read it and they were sending it to you know a bunch of their sort of um, selected directors as it were. So from that point on, I was auditioning for it really. <laughs> basically and very happy to be auditioned as it were and um uh kept failing upwards <laughs> till they, till they <laughs> gave me the job so i think it's a brilliant marriage because you can feel the heart in it you can feel the connection in it i think as well and i think that oh, and I, I was really interested in terms of from that first draft that you read how involved you get in then what you end up shooting mm. You know, in terms of rewrites and mm. and how you mould it into it, your vision as well as you know what Peter's written as well. Sure, both of us really focused in on the the, the idea of grief, basically, and and on the idea of, of this kid being stuck in his grief and how to tell that story visually. You know, so the whole idea of that unfolding. I mean, in the in the novel, you get to meet his mother and you spend quite a lot of time with her at the very start of the book. And one of the challenges here was, okay, if we don't do that, if we, if we hold a more visual idea, which is, you know, no spoiler alert, but you don't see the mom until, until the very, very end. Yeah. Uh, can we sustain that idea? Can, and, and it, and it did give us a, a certain visual approach, which was very helpful editorially as well, which is letting go of this great big sort of Dickensian buildings romance type structure that Donna has of, of coursing through a whole boy's life up into his adult years and focusing in on two time periods mm. meant that we were able to suggest the way that the past sits on the shoulders of the present all the time yeah. and you were able to get a little bit more access to his internal world visually and I was very um, mindful or sort of struck by a phrase this sort of phrase was kind of haunting me when I was making the film which is a phrase that Nicholas Rogue used many years ago saying, you know, in the editing room, all time is available all the time. Mm. And I just love that idea of, yeah. be, of being able to move backwards and forth as fluidly and as elegantly as possible to yeah. express an emotional state rather than just rendering the story. So to answer your question, that there were numerous drafts done, not vastly different. We kept distilling down, kept focusing in on, and you'd take wrong steps occasionally, you know, and we would keep going back to the book and keep challenging what was written there yeah. and seeing is there, is there a better way that we can clear away, more lucid way that we could express it um, visually. And right up to shooting, Peter was, you know, he would rewrite scenes as we were doing it. So it yeah. was, there, there was a lot of, um, a lot of rewriting. And then working with Roger Deakins as well. Amazing. I mean, those kind of the way that he like kind of just the sensual way that he brings things to life be it you know when you're in the desert with them in the Vegas of area or in the remnants of that museum after the blast or even in the antique shop you can smell the wood you mm. can mm. you know you can almost see your reflection and it's sort of thing so amazing beautiful yeah so I mean stunning work what's but, he like to work with well the amazing thing for me with Roger, I mean, he's a man of few words, and as, as, as somebody <laughs> said, he doesn't need to have many words because he's he's um, he's one of he's the Roger best visual Deacons. artists on the planet. Um, he's he's delightful. 
but he's all about character and story, mm-hmm. which is which is fascinating to me. Is is because he's he creates some of the most beautiful and indelible images in the last. 40 years in cinema but it's all he just wants to know what's going on with the character so we would have these huge long conversations I've never talked through a script in as much detail psychologically with a collaborator as I did on this we would keep going back to the script reading them together talking about what it was what it is what's going on underneath the surface of the scenes so the image comes last at the very very end of the process for him and I think that's why despite the stunning nature of so many images he never creates an image which screams look at me yeah. It's always saying, look at this, mm-hmm. or look at this, or feel this, or, yeah. you know. Um, Footstep going through the rubble. Do you know yes. all that simple I know, things? I know. Very, very simple. Yeah. Very simple. Um, and, you know, the whole conversation about how to approach the Met was a critical one because I was very nervous that the scale of the event, of that explosion, would in some sense, that it would, it would almost capsize the film, that you couldn't come back from an event of that yeah. scale when actually what the film was going after emotionally was something very internal mm. and small and delicate and I didn't want the melodrama of that awful event to overshadow the whole thing so the whole idea of doing it completely from his point of view completely through memory and in shards and taking away the more um, no pun intended explosive or, or, or louder aspects of that of that event and doing it much more impressionistically felt like the right approach mm. and then also not seeing architecture in the post explosion part that it's it's almost uh, in this kind of gray miasma yeah so that you have this, this these sort of ghostly figures yeah even the doorways you'd have no idea where it's going yeah no, exactly it's so see. clever so so that was that was a very important decision that we both arrived at early on in prep as a way because the art department kept asking us how much are we seeing how much how much of this wall is blown down and it just always would come back to unfortunately referencing real life horrific events which felt I didn't want to reference them. Yeah. In this instance, I didn't feel it was appropriate or, or yeah. tasteful. Before we run out of time, can we talk about two of your other brilliant films, if that's all right? Brooklyn and Boy are just two that I picked out, if that's all right. I mean, Brooklyn, I mean, where do you start? I, I feel kind of slightly um, uh, like I'm, I'm not giving you your dues by not dedicating an entire episode of this to Brooklyn, but maybe we can have a second sit-in. But, but with that and working with... Um, Michael Brook on that yeah. that film and and that film warranting specific things because of location and time period and navigating that around the score as well mm. was that was that an easy thing to to work on or, or how did you arrive at Brooklyn and how it would sound um, they were in lots of ways very opposite journeys in <laughs> lots of ways their two films would kind of complement yeah. each other in a weird way yeah. you know and and the the difficulty production wise with Brooklyn of course was was trying to um, Mount a story, a period story, on what was actually a very, very tight budget. And, yeah. you know, we got two days in New York. So Two days? Yeah, yeah. So the rest of it was shot in, Mon- in Montreal. So, you know, it, you were trying oh to God. hide or throw away the background. So in a way, I, I kind of made a decision early on, okay, I'm going to make this film about a face and about Saoirse. So it, it get, that gave me a very particular way in. This is different. This is one which where you've got a kid who's moving through completely different environments and you it, it needs a wide frame at yeah. times. And, yeah. and his relationship to his environments in each case is expressing the image, uh, the emotion that he can or can't reveal to anybody else. He's isolated mm. and, and trapped within everything. So they were kind of opposite ends of the, of the, the visual sphere. And then consequently, you know, the task for the score was very different. I mean, the, the, the emotion 
in Brooklyn was scoring what was going on straight in, in, in the heart, the heartbreak mm-hmm. in in Eilish and in Saoirse's amazing performance. Yeah. And so we were responding moment by moment to that. Yeah. Trying to express that and capture that and liberate that on, on a screen. around Theo's experience in this film yeah. it's a little bit more even though it, it's 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 impressionistic at times and even though it's point of view you are aware of the world that he's trapped yeah. in a little bit more so yeah. that took a different tone in this instance um, we've run out of time but please can we have sitting number two where we can go I'd into that delighted and to. talk about working with Paddy as well and on, yes. on Boyes well, I've just worked with on a, on a play that we just opened the play three weeks ago called The Very Expensive Poison at the oh, Old wow. Vic he did the music for that. Oh, wow, Paddy amazing. Um, but listen, congratulations on the Goldfinch. I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm going back to dive into the original material. Thank Thanks you very so much. much Thanks. Such a pleasure. Me too. Score to Brooklyn by Michael Brook. That's the opening titles, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with John Crowley. My huge thanks to John for taking the time to talk to us. Such a treat to get to sit down with him. The Goldfinch is on general release now with Trevor's score available via our good friends at Water Tower Music. Now we'll put a Spotify playlist for this show via edithbowman.com which is also the place to catch up with all of our previous episodes and subscribe to the podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do also check out our YouTube channel for content that doesn't quite fit into the podcast. 
Next up, very excited to bring you a female double bill. First up, actress, writer and director Dolly Wells talking about her feature film debut, Good Posture. As well as Dolly, very excited to bring you composer Hilda Gunatotier, who will be talking amongst other things about her work on The Joker. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.